does the foot move like the foot should? So can the big toe move? Can all your toes move? Can your foot rotate? Like all those things. Make joints move as well as they should. And then do that with everything else up the chain. Like just get a baseline of like just good movement mm. and then be able to put a bit of force through those things to load the tendons and the muscles. Welcome to the Restore to Explore podcast, hosted by your soulmates from the Foot Collective. I'm Jim, and here at TFC, we're on a mission to empower humans to restore their natural health and function from the ground up so they can explore movement and life with freedom and confidence. This week, I'm back with Tom to explore the topic of tibialis posterior tendinopathy. So what that is, how it happens, and what you can do about it based on the current evidence and our experience with our physiotherapy clients. So the aim of these podcasts is really to help you better understand the condition in question and to help you get started with some general tips. But when it comes to specific conditions like this, individualized assessment and guidance is really the key. So if you are struggling with this condition or any condition, especially in the lower limb, then please feel free to reach out as we can potentially help you with our online consultations or otherwise we can point you towards other tools, resources or practitioners that can help you. Before we jump into this week's episode, we wanted to let you know about our brand new TFC Explorer membership, specifically designed to help humans get out of pain and find foot freedom. You see, we've had thousands of people reach out to us from across the world since TFC was founded seven years ago. Many have been in pain, they've tried traditional approaches with health professionals and were left feeling disempowered, lost and often alone. But they refused to give up, they knew there had to be another way. And that's usually when they found us. The problem is there's so much information out there that's often conflicting and it can be super tricky to know who to listen to and what step to take next. We've been listening to these stories for years and working hard behind the scenes to bring everything we've learned from those interactions and the experiences of the collective to create something really special we believe has the potential to change lives. Whether you have a specific condition like plantar fasciitis, bunions or Morton's neuroma, or just want to improve your overall foot or movement health, the TFC Explorer membership is for you. The membership lets you into our exclusive Explorer's Circle, a private online community of like-minded humans on the same journey. Together you'll complete a 42-day virtual health experience with daily lessons and challenges that will upgrade your health from the ground up and help you build powerful, sustainable habits, plus some lifelong mates from around the world. On this journey, you'll be guided by our ultimate digital training tool, the Collective Compass. That includes a training library with exercises, routines, and detailed actionable guidance for your specific condition. Every two weeks, you'll also be able to connect for live group calls with our experienced TFC guides and your fellow explorers to share your experiences and ask questions. And if you join before July 2023, you'll get 50% off your membership for life. It's our way of saying thanks for helping pioneer this exciting new adventure. Head to thefootcollective.com forward slash explorer to learn more. You'll find the link in our show notes. Yeah, so another common-ish one today. We're sort of working through the list and I would say it's gradually getting less and less common. We'd like to hope so. You'd like to hope you hit the big ones first. Yeah, we've got to hit those, but certainly common enough that, um, you know, we get asked about it uh, fairly frequently. 
I don't know how often you see it come through in your clinic necessarily, uh, but I mean, with most people have like some form of foot slash ankle problem. They've probably got some low grade sort of tib tendon type problem going on, but full blown, yeah, probably a few times every every month. Mm. I'd say, mm. particularly you know with runners and such. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's one of those things with pretty much all the muscles and I guess structures in the foot and ankle because of, as we talk about all the time, because of our environments, our shoes, our flat level grounds, then you're almost guaranteed to have some level of dysfunction in these areas. And tibialis posterior, I guess we should, well, we'll delve into our usual anatomy physiology first. Before we do, um, just the usual caveat that you know, this is a, a broad look at this issue, trying to get into some of the details and mostly to get some actionable advice for people listening. It's not necessarily medical advice. We, we wouldn't say that this uh, replaces an individualized assessment and guidance um, because... You know, if you're self-diagnosing something, sometimes that can go wrong. It doesn't often go right. <laughs> uh, basically, if you're having a specific issue, then, you know, we highly recommend getting that checked out individually because there may be other things going on that need to be addressed. Um, so, yeah, don't, don't construe this as specific medical advice for your particular condition. But this is mostly just basically building your awareness mm. around what what things can contribute to this issue uh, in this particular case, tibialis posterior tendinopathy what a word. and some things to consider yeah. in the treatment. And it, you know, if it's possible for any of these conditions that you may have been to someone to already get individualized assessment and guidance, and maybe you haven't been seeing the results that you've been hoping for. And therefore you're trying to build your understanding about maybe what's missing in your rehab plan or uh, other things that you can do to help. So, um, and also, again, this is our current understanding. We, it may evolve as we go along, as we read more, as we interact more with clients, as we, as more research becomes available, but this is basically the, the current view based on everything that we're aware of. So, um, with that, all that being said, let's dive in and we'll start with what actually is the, the tibialis posterior tendon, Tommy? Oof, that's a good question. We got to ask a lot of good yeah, questions. Yeah, that, that one's a tough one. It's starting hard. <laughs> I, I think really what we have to do is break that down into like the three words so people understand if you don't have a lovely anatomy textbook sitting in front of you. Mm-hmm. So when you look at tibialis, that is essentially just saying your tibia. So that is the big shin bone. So if you look just below your knee, that's where the shin bone is. That's your tibia. When we look at posterior, that word means behind. So it's going to be behind the shin bone. And then the tendon slash tendinopathy, like it, the muscle itself runs essentially down the back of your entire leg. So if you think where your calf is, you can see your calf muscles. Think deeps all of those right behind your tibia and attaching to your fibula, which is the other muscle there. It has like a very broad attachment point and then it runs down the legs so or down your calf and then wraps under the medial ankle bone. So if you looked at your ankle and you, you see the big pointy bone in the middle, you will have that tendon wrapping under and around that and then attaching to a lot of different places in your foot. So I think if we start with, you know, most people who have been diagnosed or believe that they have a tibialis posterior tendinopathy, they'll understand that they feel that pain somewhere sort of around that medial ankle bone or into the foot. So I think that's... So like the middle of your, the middle part of your foot, the yeah. inside of your foot. And like reason 
it's kind of to what you know why this can somewhat be not super specific advice is that there's so many different little aspects to it i mean like i've got it written here so i could just read it like it attaches to the navicular the cuboid the cuneiforms the bases of your second through fourth metatarsal and like there's a blend into the spring ligament now like hmm. that's just lots of structures like that is a very broad attachment base for one tendon yeah, it is. It really is. And I guess there's a lot there's a lot of small bones in the joint in the foot and so 33 joints, we believe. 33 joints, 26 bones. <laughs> and so you know, they're all fairly close together. I guess that kind of makes sense, but um you know, versus yeah. the hamstring attaching to the femur and the <laughs> yeah. and the pelvis for instance, but it's quite it's quite amazing. Like it, it's a lot, and when you when you start like looking into like what could be causing the the tendon to have certain issues, you really have to appreciate the complexity of the foot, and then like mm. the wider range of attachments, and where you might be having like little micro issues, which again like that might be like one percent or even less of your issue, but it may be a contributing factor that you haven't thought of as well, or how it interacts with the other tissues around it, which we will touch on surely yeah it's always helpful to know a bit about the anatomy um and you know that can be a little bit hard to visualize sometimes if you don't have a model or a a, you know an image in front of you Uh, but you can always go and look that up on youtube there'll be there'll be something on youtube that shows you the anatomy if you're interested Mm. um but I guess, you know, that the anatomy is one thing and, and the function or the physiology of the tendon. How does that work? Oof. Yes. So, uh, again, as we've spoken out in previous ones, we talk about tendon, tendinopathies, just understanding that that word tendinopathy, tendinosis, tendinitis, they're all sort of just different mm. ways to explain very similar conditions on a continuum. Um, people will still use uh, different words and there is no real right or wrong. Opathy or tendinosis probably just is more encompassing. But at the end of the day, if someone says you've got tendinitis, Look, they may be right. They may not be very specifically right. We don't know. It's always going to depend on the person. Yeah. Um, itis being the... In, the um, what do you call it? What's the... The suffix. The suffix. suffix. Ooh, uh, we're getting some English the now. prefix and the suffix, yeah. Uh, the suffix itis just refers to mm. inflammation. So the, the question there is, is it an inflammatory condition or is it a degenerative condition? And yeah, the research, yeah, like you said, opathy... Suffix, suffixes opathy mm. and osis a bit more encompassing in cases where it's not that clear whether the inflammation is the actual issue um our but, next podcast might be an english lit review on suffixes <laughs> yeah, of yeah. physiology um but yeah so when when we look at like the function of the tendon let's start with the one that probably everyone knows is like just based on its origin and insertion that muscle is going to turn your foot inwards which is inversion which Traditionally, most people would think of as inversion ankle sprains. Like, you know, if my ankle rolls inwards, it's like, ah, it's a problem. And I think there's nothing wrong with that as a very good starting place, but it's clearly not just necessarily the design of the tendon's job. Like, that's not the whole thing. And we'll just talk about this before we get on. There are other functions or roles of that tendon that I think are far more important to appreciate. Hmm. So, well, that's, I, I guess that would be its open chain function. Yeah. So if people, people can visualize their toes coming towards the midline of their body. If you're sitting there with your legs out and you point your toes into the midline toward each other, that's basically the movement we're talking about. And that's, we call that open chain because the foot isn't um, sort of in contact with the ground, basically. And like, 
whilst that is an important function, it's a part of it, it's probably not where most people end up getting the problems with it. Mm. So like the biggest problem that you'll see or the biggest complaint people will have is like they go into a flat foot posture or pronation and then they feel that pain or discomfort around the inside ankle bone or into the foot. And the reason for that is thought to be that your tibialis posterior tendon is one of those three tendons that passes along the inside, the other two being the one that goes to your big toe and then the other one that goes to all of your four other toes. Mm. And they have a role to play in like controlling or slowing or just being active during that foot going into a pronated position. And the more pronated your foot goes, the more flat your foot goes, <clears throat> the longer that tendon is sort of going to become like, it's going to get more lengthened in some sense. And what you'll find... It just may not be able to control it. It may not be having the strength through the range to control it. And it can lead to sort of, you know, that opathy or itis where it feels sore and inflamed because it's a little bit overloaded in mm. some sense. Would you say almost over, like overstretched repetitively? Yeah, in a way. Yeah. Or like, it, it's having to work harder because it's in a more lengthened position constantly. Yeah. Uh, you, like, you think like, you know, anytime that you have to work harder at length, there is more likely going to be load through joints and tendons and like the connective tissue or like the non-contractile tissue, like your muscle, just because of the position that it's in. Mm. And, it, and, it, and to be honest, just the way it wraps around the inside ankle, it puts it at a, what we'd call a mechanical disadvantage. Like it's mm. just hard. Like mm. it's a hard spot to contract from, particularly if you're someone who doesn't have a great basis of like strength and mobility and all these other things going with it. Yeah. So that's like the the closed chain aspect of it where the foot's on the ground or it's, yeah, it's contacting the ground might, might be during um, walking or running or just standing there and it supports the position of the arch and the control of the arch. Yeah. And so as we sort of harp on each episode, pretty much pronation itself isn't a bad or problematic movement. It's a normal It's really part. needed. Yeah. Very needed. Uh, and it's a yeah, very normal part of efficient walking and running mechanics for example and you want your foot to be able to go into pronation you just also want it to be controlled in that movement and then be able to come out of pronation um when the context needs it basically when the context uh requires it so what else we got function wise so i mean we'll probably touch on like the importance of understanding up the chain events uh, as we go into like what you can do about it, I think, because it will make more sense in context rather than trying to visualize mm. anatomy. But it is just important to note, like, you know, just with where that tendon runs, it will help you with like pushing off the ground. So it is like a, a plantar flexor, as we call it, or if you just imagine like just going into like a calf raise or something, like it's going to help with that, um, particularly because it has a pretty big interaction with just, again, it's vast diversity of attachment points it's going to link with the muscle on the outside of your leg the perineal longus and they sort of wrap under sort of around like the middle part of your foot so the midfoot and they can lock in like a horse stirrup in some sense and they can Mm. help control the midfoot uh, stability and mobility depending upon what the goal of the movement is and like they have like a very nice sort of uh, symbiotic relationship if one's working too much the other's probably underworking and vice versa yeah but again when once we go into more of the how to look at it or assess it slash how to fix it, it'll be much more clear to understand like what happens with the talus, my favorite little bone there. Sure. Mm. Cool. So, well, let's get into the cause before mm. we get into, yeah, how to fix it. Mm. It's always prevention's worth, uh, <laughs> what is it? An ounce of prevention's worth a pound of cure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, what's the cause? What do we reckon? Well, I mean, like any tendinopathy, I think people, again, who have experienced it will know 
excessive anything. Yeah. So, so if your if your body is not ready to undertake something, and then you start doing a lot of that thing, it's probably going to end in some form of discomfort. So mm-hmm. we know it to be like walking, running, and jumping tends to be a lot of the problem. And like the the classic example is haven't run in six to twelve months or longer. I'm going to go out for a run. And, you know, whether you're in no shoes, minimalist shoes, bulky shoes, your feet just aren't used to absorbing that sort of force. Um, Because, again, like upwards of like more than three times your body weight is going to be going through each time as you land. Like that's a lot when you're not used to it. Mm. Oh, my God, the tendon has to work through range. Oh, that's hard. And now it hurts just because you're not conditioned and you're not good at sharing the load across all of the foot structures, all the leg structures up into your glutes and everything else. I think that's probably the key thing. Again, with any tendinopathy, it's just body is not being met where it's at at any given point. Yeah, and that tendon's take for whatever reason that tendon is taking on more load than it's ready for. Whether that's because other structures are not pulling, are not sort of um, pulling their weight, so to speak, or whether the tendon itself is just um, you know deconditioned after a long period of not doing something. Um, and obviously, our hypothesis is that narrow rigid shoes tend to restrict a lot of the the function of these muscles in the long term ever since we've put in them from about three or four (laughs) years old and so most people are walking around with some level of dysfunction through those structures anyway Mm. and then you start loading it a lot and Mm. things start to get a little bit sore and not not even just like the the compression which is a huge problem The, the thing that most people probably just take for granted is how heavy those shoes are like, if you just look at a person, do they have a, you know, a bigger hip than their foot? Like, or like, are they bigger at the foot than the hip? And that, that would have to be rare. And there's a reason that we are designed with very light, like, limbs distally around our feet and our calves and such. And True. then we chuck on this bulky shoe, which has a lot of weight, and we start swinging. And we don't really appreciate, like, there's, there's studies that show that we become more aerobically efficient if we lessen the weight of the shoe, which is great, but it doesn't really take into the account how much extra load is going to go through those structures and how that's going to be dispersed up the chain when we just keep adding more load. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I kind of used or thought about this analogy of, you know, you, you take a species of bird, for instance, say you take an eagle as a, as a cool example. They all will fly the same, basically. Mm. There's not really, there's probably very minor variation in how, an, how different eagles fly. But for the most part, they'll all use the same pattern of, you know, the way their wings move and the way they break and the way they accelerate and all of these things. Um, but if you take one eagle and you add some little weights on each wing, <laughs> then it's probably going to change the way they move. And it's going to change their efficiency and they're probably going to be less efficient than an eagle that is not wearing those weights. Um, maybe they could get used to it to a degree and compensate to it after a period, but that doesn't mean it's going to be optimal or the most efficient thing. Probably the most efficient thing is the way nature has quote unquote designed that eagle to move. And so I think maybe we've talked about it before, but you go along the river, you take a walk along the river expressway in Brisbane and you see a huge variety of different running styles and you know, it makes you wonder, it makes you, well, we're all humans. We're all the same species. Why is there so many different running styles? And, and I think a lot of the answer is probably related to all these different types of low um weights that we've got attached to our feet well, and it's different fun. inputs that's saying you mentioned birds because like we <laughs> we started watching our planet again the other day and oh yeah it was 
talking about like the flamingos and how they go into the desert and there's this big storm and then they start burying like the eggs so they can hatch and etc wow. but they have to get out of there pretty quick because it's very salty out there and there was a image of a young flamingo who i look they didn't posit it as if they were going to survive but they had had like uh salt crystallized on their legs so it looked like uh. they were wearing leg weights and the thing couldn't move wow. like, it was really struggling <clears throat> you have to think like hot in the desert too like it's not able to get out quick enough. So the slower it is, the slower or the more oh, time I think to accumulate. I that one actually. Yeah, it was really sad to think about because it's like that bird probably died. I'd imagine just yep. with what the way they posited it. <laughs> I think but, they'd cut the shot before yeah, we found they out. They didn't. They didn't show you just to leave you wondering. <laughs> but it was evident like that. The bird was not moving the way all the other birds were, and mm. it was because it had this extra weight of these crystallized like salt on on the leg. Mm. And I think that is fascinating. And yeah. when you take it to humans, like to a point we have so many different running styles but we all run through the same sort of set of movements if we if we just stick to running or walking it's very simple right you know if i'm running straight or walking straight every single person who has you know like limbs essentially is going to be moving pretty much this through the same phases that's why we have like we learn the gait cycle mm. and we learn like what running is and like you can categorically say that those people are going to go through it but it's always going to vary off what you know the textbook might deem as most biomechanically efficient Mm. there's variations of that but once you add in like heavy shoes a lot of sitting you know stiffnesses Mm. across a bunch of different joints we're very good at compensating and we're very good at finding a way to do the goal because we're humans so we consciously override some of the signals and go, nah, I'm going to go for the run anyway. It's hurting, but whatever. Don't listen to it. Get through my run. I feel good. And then two days later, you wonder why like, your foot blew up or like, you know, your knee's blown up. And it's mm. like, well, probably a few restrictions there that you probably don't need. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And, and to take that bird example again, if you have an eagle that's been flying, I guess, normally or naturally, uh, as much as it likes throughout its whole life versus an eagle that's been cooped up in a cage um, and has developed stiffnesses and different restrictions, then they're probably going to fly differently as well. Um, you, you would probably be able to pick that up on slow motion video, especially. Um, but yeah, it's the exact same with us humans. We're just basically zoo animals that have been completely taken away from their natural environment and, and have strapped these things to their feet. <laughs> Um, you know, again, sometimes for good reason, you do want to protect your feet from sharp things, hot things, all those things. We're not, um, saying that there's no role for shoes, but once you start adding in a heap of weight, a heap of cushioning, um, a big heel lift, then it does sort of inevitably change the way you move. And, and we would argue not for the better. Oh, I mean, would you chuck oven mitts on your hands all day and (laughs) say that feels good and I can do everything like, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't work. No. So, so that's, yeah, yeah that was a, a long winded way of explaining the excessive walking, <laughs> running or jumping and, or I guess yeah. a big change in technique yeah. or a sort of, uh, a technique that means that the load is not evenly distributed between the different structures in your body. Yeah. And then I think, yeah, the, when you look at like those, you know, combined with this like potentially excessive movement into that flat foot posture or into the pronated posture and again more of what you said like lack of control into that it just means that you're going to load into that tendon that's all it means and we'll explain a few of those reasons why in a second but like if you're going into there it's probably loading the tendon and then all of a sudden that's going to cause it to, to probably feel like it's you know strained or that sort of tightness sensation or the pain sensation that people can experience so there's probably like the two biggest ones like the risk factors i found were, again i swear all risk factors are like the same across like 
every condition slash pathology that we look at. Yeah. Like type 2 diabetes and obesity come across everything. Mm. And like I've been asked this a few times as a clinician. It's like, oh, I know I probably need to lose an extra few pounds. Do you think this is contributing to X? And it's like, mm, it's probably not so much like the extra weight because like you've probably built that up across time. But the habits that you have with that weight, like what you eat, how healthy is the food that you're eating, how much time are you spending sitting and mm. not exercising and doing all that stuff. And what is like the health of the tissue? Like we know that type two diabetes down the track, if you can get like a peripheral neuropathy or something like that's changing the health of your foot. So it's yeah. more like those things I think are problematic versus like the extra weight per se. Yeah. And the, I guess the extra systemic inflammation will make you more prone to inflammatory conditions there's a there's a lot of people who will have you know a tendonitis or a tendinopathy or symptoms of issues with um symptoms in tendons and restoring their gut health and really focusing on nutrition is actually the biggest thing that moves the needle for them mm. um we had Anne from the a-life who had that exact experience where she was struggling with this tendinopathy and i think it was both achilles and just from focusing on a nutrition for, a, I think, a period of months and restoring her gut health, that was the biggest thing that um, reduced those symptoms. So and that's not surprising. It's all related. Yeah. It's, if it's inflammation in an area or even just sensitivity of the tissues, uh, a lot of that's related to your overall systemic health. And yeah, and like people who haven't done like anatomy or physiology probably can't visualize this as well, but like your all your organs in your body, that viscera, they if having problems will send signals to your body physically. And the best one that we can probably everyone knows is like a heart attack. Like mm. you feel a heart attack in like a tie sort of formation down your neck or down your arm up into your neck. Like there's these like physical signs and symptoms. And like we see someone who's having a stroke, for example, like half their face droops, their like speech starts to slow and all these things come out physically. It's just that we don't, we are unable to catalog all of the problems that people are having at this current point into what happens physically. Mm. And like we may find down the track that there are signs like that, like, oh, you're having bilateral Achilles. It may link to some of this gut health or like psychological health or something. And it's always worth noting because, again, you are one human and your system is compensating somehow yeah. in some way. So it's so these musculoskeletal issues, quote unquote musculoskeletal issues, may not be purely musculoskeletal, even if they... Even if I think even if they are sort of movement, obviously movement related and load dependent and all these things, <clears throat> obviously there's some musculoskeletal component there, but you can never really uh, discount the effect of your overall systemic health. No. And, I th and to be honest, I mean, so again, coming back to these risk factors, I think this is why some of the other, like we have says middle-aged women and young athletes, right? You have to think of like, what are those people going through at that time? Like a young athlete is like potentially going through puberty. So there's a lot of hormonal changes, a lot of like physical changes. There's a lot going on there. And then the young athlete is probably running really hard and doing excessive work. So like, is it one or the other or a bit of both? Yeah. Plus the added stress of being a young athlete and all the things that come with that. And sitting all day at like, school. Yeah, like, and, there's yeah. a lot of factors there. And then like, as for the middle-aged woman, I, I would really like to look more into the research to see if they've cataloged this as like people who've had kids versus not kids and like sort of movement history. Yeah. Or, you, or menopausal versus yeah. postmenopausal. That plays a big role sometimes. It'd be interesting to see like, I could see it's simple world where you have a mother of two or three kids and like she's a caregiver and she's really taking care of the family, but she's also working. Like there's a lot of changes that happen through pregnancy. And mm. If you had two or three kids, we're talking like 18 to 27 months of your life moving differently because your body is 
functioning differently. Like that's yeah. a sleeping fair, differently. Yeah, as like well. it's a fair whack of time <clears throat> to have all those things happen. And it's not surprising that you might find like you you get excited and back into exercise and stuff like a tendinopathy happens. Like mm. a, I think they're compounding factors. The simple the simple risk factors, but there's multifacets to each of them. Yeah, for sure. And some of the other ones you got listed here. Uh, obviously, previous injury. Pretty much with any pain or injury, a big risk factor is going to be previous injury. It's the biggest risk factor in every injury ever, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And if we unpack that a bit, I think part of that would be related to possibly extra sensitivity of the nervous system to that region because it's been previously injured and it, you know, it's protective, more protective of that region. And if we understand pain as a protective signal primarily, um, which may or may, may not be directly related to tissue damage then regardless if you've if you've had a previous injury there and you've healed your nervous system may still be protective or extra protective of that area and then also there's the fact that an injury that isn't properly rehabbed will uh, in an area will mean that that area itself it has a lower capacity and therefore less likely to be able to keep up with demand yeah and i think like that's one of the interesting points, and I see it a lot in clinic, it's like someone has had an injury for a long time. And if you have a slightly different approach, which is like, look at the rest of the leg or the hip or the breathing or the vestibular system, you find these other little potential faults. And it's like, oh, I rehabbed my foot, but I didn't really look at my hip. It's like, that's probably why you have mm. had this recur is that you're not sharing load across your whole system. Like it's very easy to be very focal. Like, you know, and we get taught if you have a foot problem, look at the ankle or the knee and maybe the hip, but it's like, they stop there. Like they don't go into the back and the arms and like the everything else. Just the just, breathing. Yeah. Well, my favorite. <laughs> uh, that's what I mean. Like you, you can see why people have re- reoccurrences of problems, but you True. can also see why a lot of people don't like, sometimes it is just as simple as like make foot move better. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, if, if the foot is the weak link and you fix the weak, the, link. The weak link, then, you know, m- it makes sense that it should get better. But if the, if the hip is the weak link, which is then placing the extra load into the foot and you only focus on building the capacity of the foot, you may get some short-term results, but if you never address the hip, then, you know, even if you increase the capacity of the foot, you still may be overloading the foot because you're not sharing the load um, or distributing the load equally. Well, that could be a good thing of signs and symptoms. You could be looking into it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> actually, before actually before we do, there's there's rheumatoid arthritis, yeah. which is a, an autoimmune inflammatory condition, which basically comes back to what we were saying about yeah. systemic health, and uh, certainly there's big. Any autoimmune condition can be related to gut health, um, and there's some evidence around like. Even psychological trauma can relate to autoimmune conditions as well. So that's probably a, a deep topic that isn't really for this podcast, but um, it's just good to be aware of that. And steroid injections. Um, what's what's go with steroid injections? Steroid injections and tendons, bad. No good. <laughs> yeah. Just full stop, yeah. right? Um, so a lot of the- Which is good to know because yeah. a lot of people do get steroid injections for tendon issues. And I still to this day see a heap of people in clinic of all ages getting corticosteroid injections, right? And I think what... I'm going to quickly break this down because this is worth knowing. When you get an injection, most people are going to put local anesthetic in first. That will make you feel better mm. because it's the anesthetic, right? It, your, your limb, your tendon, wherever they put it, right? And let's say this is a tib post problem. Most people who are going to inject... They're not going to inject it into the tendon. 
because if they injected the area around the tendon, you'll still get a lot of the local um, sort of anesthetic effects. It feels great. If you inject into the tendon with that corticosteroid injection, we know that it's going to degrade the tendon health in the long run. Hmm. So not only are you putting something into a tendon, you are literally putting a sharp little pointy thing into the tendon and then you're injecting it with something. You're changing the the way that that tendon is structured. And, that's, and if you look at most problems across time with tendons, again, if we think it's a load thing, you're changing the load-bearing capacity of something by A, stabbing it and B, putting extra things in there that aren't naturally occurring in there. And like we see with like long-term tendinopathies, there is changes in like the way that the nerves and the arteries sort of invaginate or go into the tendon. And it looks like it's like a sign of recovery. Like it's trying to provide stuff internally to help heal. And often you'll see like long-term outcomes aren't good for that because, mm. you know, and I, I do think part of that comes down to just lack of full understanding of like what the primary sort of drivers are. Again, like research in physio is often sort of underpowered. There's not enough numbers, but mm. when you stick a corticosteroid injection into a tendon, it will degrade the tendon. And like uh, I used to, I've done a lot of work with swimmers, um, just being a swimming physio previously. And it's, they, they often get stuck into the shoulder and it's like, yeah, like it's great if you want to calm down a bursitis in the short term, but like, why is the bursitis there? Mm. Is it just like you did one silly thing and smacked your arm and now it's sore? Or is it like, this is built up across many strokes of many hours of swimming that you just haven't paid any attention to or no one's spotted. Mm. And like, it's, it's, it's not just, worth it. It's very much a band-aid, <laughs> but it's a band-aid that actually makes the underlying it, wound It's like putting worse. a band-aid over a scar and then it ripping the scar off and it re-bleeding. It, yeah. Yeah. Like, and that's no good. It's no good. So avoid them pretty much at all costs. <laughs> Just, yeah. And again, that's that's a personal preference from what I've read from the research and seen clinically. And again, there might be a time and place that if you're in absolutely terrible pain, it might be, again, something that's worth considering. All options are always worth considering as long as you understand... The trade-offs. Yeah, the trade-off with it. Yeah. Cool. Good to, good to chat through that one. So signs and symptoms, we've kind of already um, alluded to them, but let's, we'll just go a bit deeper. Yeah. So, I mean, the symptom of pain is, you know, probably the most obvious one. Like you have that pain, like we said, on the medial ankle bone. So again, if you looked at your ankle, found the medial ankle bone, that tendon is running under it into the foot. So in there, it likely to have pain and also into like the middle part of your foot. So if you looked at where your toes are to your heel, and then you just sort of go into the midpoint, that's roughly where that tendon's coursing and then into those multiple attachment points. So most people are going to have some form of pain symptom into that area. Mm-hmm. I think that's the one that most people um, experience, to be honest, uh, of anything. And like, then they'll report kind of what we said, like what hurts? Well, loading it. So whether that's standing on a single leg, walking, running, jumping, anything that requires mm-hmm. your foot ankle to go into that flat foot pronated position, which means that the tendon has to go through relatively like more length. It's going to probably hurt it, to be honest. Um, sometimes if it's really severe, you might have pain on trying to turn your foot inwards, like into that inversion um, in that open sort of mm. kinetic chain uh, posture. And I find that that tends to be like when things are really bad, if that's happening, because it's not a lot of load relatively to you standing on your leg. And I, I would say, I reckon I've probably seen one or two across time that have not been surgical, just pure like tendinopathy that have had swelling. And that's quite severe they've come in like the slightly older demographic and Mm. they've had it going on for months and just haven't really had success dealing with it Mm -hmm. but like the short-term acute ones don't really see too much swelling i think um and then you just yeah you you go down the list of like 
when is the tendon getting used it's probably just going to cause it problems like and it's going to feel sore yeah um there are a few other things but have you seen anything uh extra to that Nah, not really sort of yeah ten i tenderness on palpation you know when you actually press into it usually that's the case with tendon issues you'll get some some of that tenderness no <laughs> T- tenderness in the tendon <laughs> um but yeah that that's pretty much the gist you'll i guess that's where it's i mean foot and ankle conditions it's a pretty small area there might people might get that kind of pain confused. They might think they've got plantar fasciitis and they might think this, they might think that, but there are, it's a small area, but if it's down, like just underneath that medial malleolus and in that area, like on the inside of the foot, it's different to sort of the bottom of your heel. And it's, you know, I think a lot of people just get a pain in their foot and they're like, Oh, plantar fasciitis. I'm sure that's what happens. I'm sure if you type it into Google, that's what people come up with every time. They're like, Oh, I've got plantar fasciitis and it, it just may not be. So it's, it's worth, um, yeah, it's well, as we always say, it's worth getting it checked out properly. Um, so treatment journey. This is, yeah. Um, I've been told by a few of the people who listen that our calm shit down, build shit up has, has become a little saying for them. So I really like that. So let's keep it. Let's keep that going. It's a nice, easy one. Yeah. Because to be honest, it makes the most sense too. Like if you're something's really annoyed and it feels inflamed, feels tight, feels sore, don't try and force it. Yeah. Like move something else. Like if it's your foot, try and just move your knee and hip. Like get away from the site, but keep things moving is a yeah. good start. And once you once you learn that as a motto life gets a bit easier um that's where like you know this discussion of orthotics can be useful for some people like mm. if we think that part of the problem for someone is going into a great deal of uh, foot pronation or flat foot posture and you have an orthotic that does minimize that range in the short term to alleviate pain and like let's use an example let's say you're someone who has to stay on their feet all day at work like a nurse or someone you have to earn money to have an income so we have to have like this trade-off of like, we know that in the long term, we don't want that orthotic. So we have to have a plan to get out. But in the short term, like if you have to get to work and you can't take time off, well, we might need to use it to just minimize some of the discomfort. And that's okay. Yeah. yeah. And I think, and part of it's minimizing discomfort and also uh, minimizing the progression of the dysfunction, I suppose, because, you know, the, with tendon issues, there's a g- degenerative component where... Um, you know, whatever's going on structurally there will progress unless something is done about it. And because as we've discussed, the function of this tendon is heavily related to controlling the arch and controlling pronation, then if you don't do anything about it, and this is something that we talked, I talked about with Chloe May on the uh, Functional Souls podcast a few episodes back, um, it can contribute to the development of adult acquired flat foot. So if that tendon degenerates and you lose, you know, too much capacity in there, then it's a lot harder to get back that arch function. And then as we have said in most of the podcasts so far, <laughs> that overpronation or that lack of control in pronation is a big contributor to other foot conditions like plantar fasciitis, bunions, um, pretty much everything. All of them. <laughs> which is why, which is, you can see why pronation has been like demonized or pronation has been this, this whole thing in the industry that we want to, want to control. But the big thing there is short term 
depending on what stage you are obviously, but definitely shorter term or the aim is short term support so that you can restore capacity in the, in the tendon, not support so that you never have to strengthen your legs again, and that's strengthen your feet again. Probably a good indicator. If, if you see a health professional who gives you an orthotic and they don't give you anything else to do, whether that's passively moving the toes, the foot, moving the knee or hip or something else, or a plan to yeah. progressively load the area. That's probably an indicator that we'd say it's a red flag. Red flag. <laughs> Ask questions or see someone else. Yeah. I think that's a very important part. Um, but from that point, this is where it gets real fun and interesting, I think. So when we... If we, we, we started the foot and work up, it's probably making some most sense. And this is the thing that I was sort of talking to you prior to coming on. When you look at the way that that tib tendon passes under the foot... And you look at the way like the big toe tendon passes under and then the same with the like little toe tendons. They essentially create like a dynamic sling right, under the, the talus, which is the bone in the ankle joint. Now, if we think of your, your heel as it sits there, that bone sits above the heel. And naturally, when you stand on it, what will happen is that bone will naturally want to sort of tilt, which will cause your foot to go into pronation. And those muscles are there to dynamically help stabilize that aspect. So that's why pronation is not bad. Like you were kind of physiologically designed by the structure of your bones to go into pronation. Mm. What we have to make sure of is that you have the ability to control that and like that motion. So then we go, well, what are those three tendons doing in there? Like we talked about Tim Post, but your big toe tendon and your little toe tendons, like they are two important aspects to any Tim Post problem because if they can't take on load, particularly in helping to control that sort of tailless movement or even activate themselves, it's going to shift load onto the Tim Post tendon. Mm. That seems very easy to understand and very logical to my lovely brain. Mm -hmm. But also if we look at it from like a a springiness position too, like your, we talk about the windlass mechanism, which we've talked about in the past, where like, as I go to push off in walking and my big toe particularly goes into like that extended posture, that is a rigid lever being formed by non-contractile tissues, not muscle tissue. That is just like ligamentous fascial tissue that winds up and allows your foot to be a rigid lever. And part of that comes if we let the foot deform into pronation, it's like, imagine like I'm jumping on a trampoline. I'm going to spring in and then it's going to spring back. Mm-hmm. And it becomes this very efficient way of loading without having to use muscular effort. And one of the problems that the tip post tendon can have is it's working too hard or having to work too hard. And that's partially because your foot is unable to go through those ranges properly and the, the non-contractile tissues aren't doing their job. So if you find that you're someone who has a lack of big toe extension, particularly, or even the other four toes not moving, you're probably not going to get access to the free energy or like the the free Mm. control of your foot. So you really have to go toes up the chain. Are those toes moving the way they should? And if they're not, then probably should start there and try to get them moving. And then you go, what's the next step? Look at like the long toe bones like the metatarsals and that's between the the metatarsals and the tarsals the smaller bones of your foot that's where all these attachment points are going can you activate those muscles appropriately both the tib post the the big toe tendon the the long toe tendons but also the muscle we mentioned earlier the perineal longus as it comes from the other angle because again if it's a horse stirrup and it's sort of rocking and rolling you need to understand what's going on on both sides and often you know you might find that if you're really flat foot and posture Want that perineal longus is probably pulling you a little bit more is in that sort of position and the tib post isn't able to help pull you out. So you have to identify with those muscles and the sort of foot intrinsics what's not happening. Hmm. And I think like it's a very deep dive into it, but like you need to understand all of those components to figure out why is the tib post the one that's getting sore. Yeah. And that's like a, a very good starting place. So really look for that and then 
we'll build up the chain, but anything to add to the, the foot slash ankle stuff? No, I don't think so. I think for people to, who want to sort of see that in action and, and be talked through how to assess that, um, we've got some assessment videos online um, in the community. Actually, you can join up mm. for free. It's in the Foot Freedom map um, because, yeah, toe extension is one of those things that, again, it's kind of like the pronation thing. It comes up again and again and is re- um, related to pretty much every foot issue uh, a lack of toe extension uh, and it also a lack of toe extension will affect things upstream as well and vice versa so um, it's a big it's a very important aspect of foot function um, so and all of these things work together so as mm. Tom said obviously through that with the windless mechanism the big toe extension will affect how your foot um, sort of bounces back out of pronation and therefore is able to use the sort of natural springs within it. So um, go and check out those uh, self-assessments in the community. There'll be a link in the show notes to join the community. It's free. Um, Yeah. And yeah, let's go upstream. Let's go up the stream. This is so when we, again, breaking down your sort of foot going to that flat foot posture, which is going to load the tip tendon coming up just past the ankle. Like what is your shin doing? Mm-hmm. Right? So if you're, we know that my shin internally rotating is going to cause a, uh, my foot to go flatter. That's sort of just standard biomechanics. You have to then think of just from a muscle standpoint, like which muscles can be, again, potentially be controlling that. So the hamstrings that attach to the inside and some of your adductors as well, like they have the capacity to internally rotate your shin and then the hamstrings on the outside have the ability to externally rotate or turn it outwards Mm. so again like what's the level of control that you have through those hamstrings and then that comes into again what nick is always huge on is the hip like then you come up to the hip and like how do the muscles around my hip control hip internal and external rotation which again if my hip is going into internal rotation by the bony mechanisms that's going to cause a a foot pronation Mm. okay and like your body is, again, very good at compensating. So you might find and you might do all the work in the world around your foot to try and get all those things working. It's like, I'm still not, it's not changing. It's like, well, what's happening at like the strong part of your body, which is the hip. Yeah. And like between the hamstrings and the hip, you really need to understand what's going on there to then get a full picture of at least like, you know, if it's your right leg, get the full picture of the right leg. And yeah. then once you have that understanding, it's probably worth doing the same on the other leg because as you're walking, you know, you need both legs to do that. So you might find other little funny things going on on the other leg, which tends to increase the load that's going into that tib post on your right foot. Yeah. If we, and if we break down just for, again, for people to visualize. So I think a lot of people do think of the knee as a hinge joint mm. or is it all it does at the knee is flex and extend. But what Tom's saying there is that there's something called tibial rotation. So we mentioned at the top of the podcast that there was, um, the shin bone, the main mm. shin bone that goes down the front is called your tibia. So that can actually rotate itself. So a simple way to test that if you're sitting down, you hold onto your thigh and you point your toes away from your, the midline of your body and towards the midline of your body. So that's, it's a small amount of rotation, but that is different to if you have your leg fully out uh, on the ground and then you rotate your toes in towards the midline or out, that's more hip rotation so um the control of both of those or i guess the mobility you have as well as the control in the ranges are very important um it's probably worth noting too like if you do that 
with your foot up in that open chain versus the foot in closed chain, it looks different and functions slightly differently True. as well. So yeah. that's why one of the, the cool videos you filmed exercises, the hip talk exercise, just yeah. a really good demonstration of like how your hip can affect the arch of your foot. And it, it's quite interesting to see when you watch it in real time. Yeah. And that's why, you know, sitting in a chair all the time is essentially, it, I don't know if you could say it's, directly affecting it but it's pretty much directly um contributing to these foot and ankle conditions because it's reducing the capacity you have at your hip it's reducing the mobility the strength and the coordination at your hip and therefore it's affecting the way your uh, foot arch is um controlled and the strength and, and coordination in that area yeah and i think the word coordination is really key there because i think as you continue to go up to the chain like again when my right foot steps forward you know my left arm's going to be forward and then as I go into taking all the weight onto it, like that mid stance of gait, like the position of my left arm relatively is going to affect how I load and my opposite limbs would be doing. So the opposite motion. So like that coordination of arm to leg will affect the way that your trunk moves and affect hmm. the way that you load that foot, which then goes into like a part of your system. The reason that you've got so many joints in the foot and like your spine is designed in its way is also to mitigate the force before it gets to the head. Because you really want to save the brain. Probably don't want to smack that thing around too much. Preferably. So you have to understand that your body is kind of designed to protect that thing. But your vestibular system, which is like the system in your inner ear, and your visual system, which is your eyes, the way that you can load through them and have like low tolerance is going to affect the way you load through your foot. So like, for example, if I turn my eyes to the left and my head to the left, I'm naturally going to let my foot collapse into a pronated posture. Mm-hmm. If I go the other way, again, naturally, there's going to be a reaction at my foot. So understanding that having good balance and like foot mechanics and stuff is really useful. But if you don't challenge that up the chain or understand like, oh, maybe it's like I can't turn my head with control with my foot or vice versa. Mm. There is this layer to that that I do not think people have been taught slash we don't understand well enough. So then we just miss it. And that may be one of the many like little links that you've missed into like your problem. Yeah. Because it does get it get it gets fairly deep and in the complex. weeds, as one would say. <laughs> um, but when you bring it back down to the simplicity, is that everything is connected in the body. Um, obviously, neurologically connected and and even physically connected through all these lines of fascia. So, you know, things happening up at your neck and shoulders will affect things happening down at the feet, especially Mm. when you think about a a movement pattern like walking and running, where it's a coordinated movement between your uh, upper limbs, your torso, your lower limbs, and all of those fascial lines are working together to create an efficient movement pattern. So if there's there's an issue anywhere upstream, it can affect downstream and vice versa. so yeah, it's always it's always good to if if you're even if you're looking at the foot, ankle, and hip, and doing all the things there, but you're not quite getting the results that you want. It's worth going even further upstream and and um, I guess deeper from a neurological perspective into eyes and and um, vestibular system. And the, well, then bring it all which back. Which is hard to do yeah. by yourself, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you got to read a lot to do it too. Yeah, but I think to or just see Tom. Yeah, see that could work. Um, but bringing it all the way back, like if you go very simply, again, something that we said about the podcast, does the foot move like the foot should? So can the big toe move? Can all your toes move? Can your foot rotate? Like all those things. Make joints move as well as they should. And then do that with everything else up the chain. Like just get a baseline of like just good movement mm. and then be able to put a bit of force through those things to load the tendons and the muscles. So like we know that your 
tip post is an inverter, like we said, and it's going to control the foot going to pronation. So can you learn to put some sort of concentric or like overcoming sort of force into it and go, I can actually feel that working, but in a position that's not lengthened. So I'm not dropping it all the way into pronation to really stress it. I'm trying to find an angle that I can put load into it to stimulate some strength uh, building in the tendon or in the muscle. And then over time, look to do things that are slightly more challenging, like going into that lengthening eccentric Mm. sort of movement before progressing into like plyometric work. And again, that may be like, you know, again, the foot, it could be the hip. I might be trying to really control my hip going through internal and external rotation, yeah. which changes my foot, which then stops loading the foot and then progressing that over time. Mm, and that this comes back to that calm, calm down, build up model. Like there's no point trying to um, improve your capacity to do running and jumping before you're actually able to uh, hold a, say, supinated position statically or isometrically without pain so you know it's it's like tom said if you take the tendon out of that lengthened position it's more likely to it's less likely to get irritated so if you can strengthen it in that position where it's not being irritated that's a really good thing to start with and then gradually add in those positions or movements that lengthen that tendon more and more and that's where the sort of build-up model comes and the cool thing is you can do a lot of the build-up in the areas upstream without irritating the specific issues. So say you've got the, that issue while you're running, jumping, or walking, or standing on one leg. Um, you can isolate your hip rotation, for example, or you can improve your hip rotation capacity. Um, you could improve you know, your trunk control, all these things that you can work on while you're calming down the specific area which is which is good it's it it means that and and also to think about the fact that that's none of that is by any means a waste of time no (laughs) it's actually if you're getting this pain and this is kind of what we come back to with all of these conditions is you can view that as an opportunity to really take a step back and look at your body honestly and go where can i improve and all of those things will either improve your performance in the long term with whatever activity or sport it is that you're wanting to do and also improve your longevity so you know if it's one thing to support an area and then be able to go back to your your running etc but that just means that another area is likely to break down for want of a better word or is likely to become symptomatic or likely to have issues in the future because you never actually solved the underlying issue with how all of these parts are working together yeah it's it's actually just reminded me um last night at in the clinic a client i hadn't seen in a while came back and it's probably the best compliment i think i've ever gotten told as a a physio wow he he called me a detective and i was like (laughs) what do you mean and he's like when he comes in and which i haven't seen him probably over a year he's like it's fun because whilst there's a problem he had like an elbow problem it's like we're looking at the elbow, but we want to understand what's going on at the hand and the shoulder. And mm. it's like this sort of detective game of like, where are things not working or being able to load? Like what's doing too much, what's doing too little. And it's like a game that we're playing together on this journey. And like, as I'm saying things, he's remembering things that he didn't tell me at the start. And like, it's, he, he said, it's like, it's just really fun. Like, yeah, it's, it's annoying to have pain, but it's like a fun little exploration of my body. And like, every time we, we go through the journey together, cause it's not just me saying stuff. It's like conversing. Cause that's, I think how you should do physio. You get to this shared understanding like, oh, let's try this thing. 
And then all of a sudden, like that thing, which may seem slightly removed from like the elbow pain, you do it and it's like, oh, my elbow feels a bit better. Mm. Now, again, that could be psychosomatic. It could, it could well just be like load sharing. It could be all sorts of things. But it's like a fun exploration of your own body mm. just with me guiding it based on some physiological principles. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like they come in, they know the victim, aka the elbow, mm. but... Well, who was the culprit? Yeah. Who was involved? Who was the culprit? Who's the associates? And I've never thought of it that way. <laughs> and but what's like, the relationship between those culprit and associates? Such a fun way to look at it. it and honestly, cool. I had a great 40 minutes. I was yeah. like, you know what? That's the best thing I've ever heard. So, yeah. So, yeah. And I think that comes back to our point that we've just gone through a lot of things that you can be aware of, but that can be really hard to figure out by yourself. And actually having someone else who can look at the way you're moving and, um, you know, take you through different tests and help you interpret those tests and help you figure out what the m- most important thing to focus on is, it can be really helpful because it's, it can be pretty overwhelming. Mm. Um, and it's more fun, I think, doing it with someone else as well. 100%. And if that person has, uh, a lot of experience at looking at people moving and being, being a t- detective with these issues, it's even better. So, and can help point you at the things that you actually need to do to get back to the, the thing that you want to do Yeah. rather than wasting weeks or months, just like doing things and not getting back to running as an example. Yeah. It's like, well, if you want to get back to running, let's aim to get you there as quickly and as efficiently as possible and safely. But then once you get there, you're happier, life's good. Now it's slowly build the capacity through all these other things and the way you can like spend a little bit more time doing X, but whilst you're still doing the thing you actually really want to do. Yeah. So on that note, we can plug, obviously we've got um, online physio sessions available if you're struggling with, you know, TIB post tendinopathy or any condition really. We've also got a network of practitioners around Australia that we can recommend. We, we do believe in-person sessions um, are really great and really valuable and, and, you know, online is like a good backup if you just don't have an in, uh, someone in person mm. local to you. Um, and we also do have uh, the community and the Trek to Base Camp, which systemizes a lot of the build-up components of all of these areas. So, you know, we're not just looking at the foot and ankle. We're looking at how your breathing interacts with your core and your spine and therefore your hips and ankles and, and from all the way downstream to upstream. Um so that's a 42-day experience that uh, helps you build up that awareness and skills and habits that you need to, um, yeah, really become more independent. So mm. that's what we're about. Is at the end of the day, it just comes back to giving you back control. But sometimes you need help. It's it's all well and good to say, hey, it's all up to you. It's you know you're in control here. But you actually need the tools and the you know the foundational skills and knowledge and Frankly, we believe the community to help you do that. And um, that's the TFC model. Tools, no, no point going to try and build community. a house if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. So um, those are all our best sort of resources and recommendations that you can look into if you are struggling with tip post tendinopathy or any other condition. Um, and, you know, if you, if you got value out of this podcast, we'd love to hear about it we love um we love hearing from people who you know listen and get value um you can ask any questions in the community there's a, a, a fireside circle where you can ask questions and people can give their experience and their um i guess expertise in some cases as well and yeah anything anything else to add before we wrap up 
No, no, I mean, I'll probably just plug it. I've actually really enjoyed the fireside in the community. I think as, mm. as one of like the highlights is like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of members in there, which has been really good, probably more than probably anticipated really quickly, which yep. has been really cool. But just the discussion, like people just start asking questions. And to be honest, by the time we see them, there's like five or six replies mm. just from other people in the community. I'm like, this is sick. Like, <laughs> like, A, it means that we don't always have to go in and answer every question because like people are becoming more self-reliant and they're just helping each other out and it's like it's nice to see everyone trying to uplift versus like degrade ideas Mm. it's such a different vibe to social media in some ways like because everyone there is there for the purpose of you know getting help or helping others and likely a bit of both and you know it's not about author authoritatively saying oh this is the answer it's just like oh here's my experience with that and i'm not sure you know how that relates to you but this is maybe something to look into and there's there's a lot of power in that community sharing and in a space where i, I guess you know to use the word safe space i suppose where you know that no one's going to be out there talking shit at you and um degrading you or saying whatever it's just it's a, an open honest and supportive kind of forum so and i'll just peer pressure you to do 100 car phrases uh, yeah yeah don't, don't listen to tommy <laughs> um but my car phrases my calves are much better now and they um you know i'm starting to build even more capacity in them which is really cool what a job <laughs> so thank you Tommy, <laughs> for All challenging right. me to 100 <laughs> car phrases um Cool. Well, we'll wrap it up there. We'll, um, yeah, we'll be back with more of these common conditions. If there's a condition that you'd like us to talk about that we haven't already, obviously just go back and check all the previous episodes to make sure that we haven't already covered it. But if there's a condition you'd like us to explore, we're always open to exploring it. Um, and yeah, otherwise just stay tuned for the next step. All right. I'll see you later. Adios. Adios. Thanks for listening to the Restore to Explore podcast. To stay up to date with all things TFC, join our brand new free community. Inside, you'll find a growing library of education, training and resources to help you resolve common conditions, restore natural function and explore your body's potential with a community that's there to support you along the way. To join, just head to thefootcollective.com or you'll find the link in our show notes.